Coming to you from the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City at Novell Brainshare, this is... Novell Open Audio! Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community to what's going on inside and around the Novell user community. Okay. You know the rest. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us here at Brainshare. We're so glad that you came out to see us. we got a couple great guests for you today. We've got, of course, the infamous CTO of Open Source at Novell, Nat Friedman, coming up to join us. And we've got uh, Boyd Timothy, who is the maintainer of the Tomboy Project. Some of you may use Tomboy Notes uh, inside of the Linux desktop if you're using the Linux Enterprise desktop. And Boyd is going to come up and talk to us as well. Do we have any other uh, housekeeping things we need to cover? You could have introduced us like we normally oh, do at the geez, beginning of the wow, show. Oh, right. Yeah. When I screw Screwed that up, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, Novel Audio, the podcast connects the Novel user community to know what's going on inside and around Novel user. I'm your host, Ted Hager. And I'm Aaron Quill. And I'm Kate Hans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's bring up our first guest right now. And Boyd, if you'd come on up and join us here, give it a round, give it up for Boyd Timothy, please. Now, Boyd maintains. Whoa, whoa. Okay, Boyd maintains the Tomboy project on Susan Lennox Enterprise desktop. And let's just start this out. Boyd, can you tell us what Tomboy is? Tomboy is a personal note-taking application, essentially. Uh, if, you, if you think of uh, a Post-it note, except better because it's on your computer. And uh, if you've heard of a wiki, then you know what Tomboy is. And uh, essentially, Tomboy's whole idea is to allow you to take a note, take it quickly, and it's saved. You don't have to save it. You're done. Yeah, it, it, it's actually very cool. In fact, Caitlin, your sheet's not all torn up like mine, so I'll hold yours up. <laughs> Nervous um, energy. I, I actually took all these cool nudes, no, n- newts. Newts. N- notes. <laughs> I, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce all the English words. Um, all these cool notes. I, I'm a tomboy junkie. I use it throughout the day. What it does is it, it lets you kick up a note, start to take a note, and then you know how a lot of times you've got ideas that are linked together? So, you know, like when we're writing this agenda for this show, you know, you might be saying, all right, we're going to do no an audio show. We're going to bring in these different people. We're going to uh, do an interview with Boyd. What I can easily do is highlight interview with Boyd, hit the link button, and it creates a whole nother note that's now permanently linked, much like a wiki, like it described earlier. Um, and I can put cool notes with bullets. And the other Boyd right here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I get excited. <laughs> he, gets, he does get excited because he lives inside of that every day. Um, so you became maintainer on Tomboy not too long ago, correct? Yeah. It was actually a, uh, an interesting point in time. I, I used to code on the, the IFolder project. Some of you have heard of that. And it's written in C Sharp. Well, uh, our, our team kind of got moved around a little bit. And I, I came on to the SLED desktop team. And... Voila, there was Tomboy. It's written in C-sharp. It looked really cool, and I wanted to learn more about it. And uh, so anyhow. So, so wait, um, yes, yes, yes. You're, you're saying C-sharp, but isn't iFolder actually coded in Mono? No, no, yeah, it's 
Uh, C-sharp is mono. Right, precisely. That's yes, what I was yes, trying yes. to get out. Okay, so right, right, your, right. Your previous project was on mono, and now the new project, I mean, was it a choice of yours to keep coding in mono? Did you have options to go to other things, or did that have nothing to do with your decision at all? had nothing to do with my decision as far as what Tomboy is written in, mm -hmm. uh, but it fit well. Uh, C-sharp I love, mono I love. It's really fast, really easy to make a, an application. Um, it's awesome that it runs right in Linux, and that, that's what Tomboy was written in, and I, I thought it was a perfect fit. So uh, somebody mentioned that, that Alex Gravely, he's the, he's the original author of Tomboy. And that's at Beatnik Software where he works, right. is that correct? Okay. Well, he actually works for v VMware now. Okay. I think he originally worked at uh, Zimian. That's how no a, lot of us, a lot of us know him. And uh, I heard that he was looking for somebody else. You know, he's really busy at VMware. He's got another cool project called Gimme. And I heard that he was, uh, he was looking for some other people to come in and help. And, you know, I hadn't been really a part of, uh, of open source as far as, like, I've never maintained a project before. And so I'm like, well, this, this might be a cool opportunity, but I'm really reluctant. And the cool thing is that he was, he was really gracious in saying, yeah, if you want to come in and help, that'd be awesome. And so I guess... You know, I'm still learning on how to maintain a project. So has that been a pretty tough transition? Because, I mean, you've been with Novell for how long? I think it's been about 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So, and I know, what did you code before iFolder? Uh, before iFolder, I used to work on iManager, which used to be Novell Portal Services. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it's been... It's been fun. So how has the transition, I, I guess what I'm really interested in, how has that transition gone from, I mean, working on closed source proprietary stuff to then moving over and, and picking up a, a, a project that's very much developed in the open by multiple contributors from different companies and such? Has that, it been pretty different? It has. It's, it is a lot different, and there's a lot, of, a lot of things to learn. You know, one of the coolest things, I think, is, you know, when you're working on a closed source project, um, trying to get feedback from real people, from real customers, not that uh, the people I work with aren't real, but um, trying to get feedback in that situation takes a lot longer. And, and with an open source project, if I ever have a question, I just send out an email to everybody and the, whoever's paying attention out there, and the, the message comes right back. I mean, you get immediate feedback. And, so, uh, and that's so that like transition You have helped. to wait for a release for your like proprietary product exactly and then you have to make sure people deploy it and then you so this is more like just free form you put out um, a release in open source it doesn't have to be in any product and you can get feedback right exactly yeah all right yeah that whole process with the proprietary side just takes so long that uh it's it's really cool too because uh well uh i think i think it's basically up to a lot of you know as you participate in open source it's a, it's made up of you and so it's going to be as successful as as you're basically willing to put yourself out there and uh you know the more you do that if you if you're wondering about something you know go ahead and ask a question and you know a lot of people are a little shy to come into an open source project because they're not sure how people respond to them but the truth of it is um you know as far as i'm concerned I'm excited when people come in and ask questions because that's exactly how how Tomboy gets better. Right? Yeah, if anybody that's familiar with doing booth duty here in the lab knows that if, if you're willing to actually listen to somebody, there's going to be plenty of people telling you what's good and probably a lot of what they need more of or anything like that. Exactly. But I'd imagine so. the, the cool thing with open source and with a project like this is the feedback loop is just so short. Like you were mentioning before about um, release cycles, 
I was in his office just the other day, and I'm showing something, asking him a question. He's like, well, yeah, actually, I just fixed that. It was checked in. You'll have an update tonight when you go home. And, I mean, it, it's just so cool that, you know, as I'm showing him stuff, stuff's changing, and it's going to be on my laptop real soon because I subscribed to that uh, repo that he's got it sitting on. Cool. Do we want to get some audience questions? Yeah. Any questions from the audience? Got one right up here. Uh, well, yeah, let's get a microphone on you there. You got it, Mike? All right, fire away. Um, first, with uh, maintaining open source project, you know, what's involved in that? Good question. Um, so maintaining, <coughs> some maintainers, all that they do, the, the most simple thing you do is when it's time, uh, take the code and roll a tarball, basically create a tar.gz from the code and put it out there. Um, so that's like the very simplest thing you can do. Um, and it, doing that for me takes about an hour process. Uh, you, roll, you, you roll a new tarball, you check it and make sure it actually compiles still. Uh, you go out and tag the code in, in subversion. You type up your release notes, right, in, in the news file. And you type up a, you know, all these things are going on at the same time. And uh, I go out and, and type up a release email that I'll send out to, like, the GNOME announced list and the Tomboy mailing list. And uh, then I've got to take the tarball, submit it to the GNOME uh, server. And so it actually gets on, like, download.gnome.org. And once, once that's there and all ready, then I send out the email. And, I mean, that's essentially the process of releasing a tarball. But, but being a maintainer, you, also, you, you can also kind of direct where the project is going as far as, like, when it's, when it's time to decide, well, does this feature, is this important or not? Uh, that's, that's another role of a maintainer. No, no follow-up questions. This is Aaron, by the way. If he's speaking, it's probably sarcastic. Okay, got it. Um, also, kind of with that... Bring him up, Mike. Also, kind of... Well, sorry. <laughs> also, kind of with that, um, compared to the closed-source projects you've been uh, part of, do you find that the open source is more organic, or you're, you're surprised kind of how it goes, or, you know, does it change you don't how much can you know as far as control with the product details and things like that it's definitely more or organic um, one thing in open source is it's it's made up of everybody right um, we have people all over the world participating in tomboy and so there's you know there's no manager that says you're doing this feature or else right and so it's kind of by their grace that they spend time and and uh, that, that's how the open source thrives is when people participate. And so it's, you know, we had this meeting uh, a couple, couple weeks ago on an RSC channel about Tomboy, and we talked about what we'd like to see in the next version of Tomboy, but it all depends on whether somebody has time to actually do that, right? Because if it doesn't go in, well, we've got, we'll, we'll make a release because that's how GNOME works. We make, you just, you make regular releases, but nobody, you know, there might be something where somebody comes in and actually adds a new feature that we've never thought about. And it's, it's good, it's ready to go, and it'll be included. So, 
It's very organic. One of the cool things is if you, and we'll put a link to the actual GNOME uh, site that they've got set up so, or, so that you can see they've got just this whole list of futures that they would like to see on the product, and anybody can go in and make a suggestion to say, you know, I'd like to see a link of in-between Tomboy notes and a mind map uh, application. Or actually, weren't you just telling me you saw um, a latex module for yeah. Tomboy? Yeah. Yeah, some, not, a lot of things, uh, we're trying to keep Tomboy simple, and so some things we won't include, and I, I guess we haven't really talked about the latex plugin, but for example, a couple weeks ago, within the last couple weeks, uh, somebody wrote a latex plugin so you can go write up a, a, a gnarly math equation that what, what I won't the, what understand. What is latex? Something to do with math equations. See, it's, oh, it's okay. beyond me. Actually, it's latex. Latex. See, it's, but I don't it's spelled even like latex. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what sort of fetish he is. <laughs> oh boy. So, um, continue. <laughs> Anyhow, apparently you can go in and write up this, write up some math equation, which I probably could add up two plus two or something. And and what will happen is you'll end up with a nice, you know, all the proper what sigmas and summation notation in the LaTeX. And it'll be it'll look like a little image inside your note. So somebody uh, somebody just has that out there. So you can go grab that and throw it in your plugins directory. And now Tomboy has that extra feature. I can use that for my calculus. Oh. You can use it for your calculus. Yeah, I can use it for my calculus. <laughs> good for you. I wouldn't know what it would mean. Oh yeah, good good. Cool. I think we had one other question right over here. Boyd, you're in a unique position that you've worked both proprietary and open source. What advice can you give us regarding how to overcome objections that people have about the quality of open source software? Good question. Good question. You, you, you know, the other thing is, you definitely make your own comments on that, but that's one we sure. want to bring up again when we've got Nat up here, because that's a perfect question for Nat. Absolutely. But Boyd, let's hear your approach on it. <laughs> Just well, make sure it doesn't Nat, Nat conflict with me. what Nat's going to say. <laughs> Preemptively. Um, the, the good thing about open source software is lots of people can look at it. And if, if there are glaring problems, um, everybody in the world can see it. And you know, a lot of times people will make comments about my code saying, you know what, you probably should do it this way. And uh, while, while not every single person is going to look at every single line of code, I think um, I, I like it because there's a review. It's never closed. Everybody can see it. There's no secrets. Um, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question in a way, but... Can we, can we get the microphone on you for that, Drew? Yes, I know every listener's name by but personally. <laughs> it's it's more comments that you hear that it's some hippie in a garage programming this. How can you trust the software that's coming out of open source? That's the type of things that you have to overcome that companies in other locations in the West and the Northwest are, are saying about open source software. So, so wait for a second. Who here looks at Boyd and thinks hippie? Oh! <laughs> you granola crunching, no good, patchouli wearing. <laughs> He's got docks on. He doesn't have sandals. <laughs> they're really, they're really old and worn out, actually. Excellent. Need to get new ones. Um, I was going to say something. 
<laughs> no, it's not. Thanks we, a lot. We're, we're professionals at distracting. <laughs> So um, maybe, um, maybe maybe let's take that question though, and let's apply that one. Let's let's hold Nat's feet to the fire as well on that one. We'll give you the tough question shirt right now, but the sh headphones we're holding back on. Um, let's do one more question. Oh, you want to hit this it. one? All right. So, I guess I guess what I would say is, me personally, I don't care where software comes from. If it's good software, I want to run it, and whether that's. Uh, I don't know, Microsoft Office, not that I run that, but, which I don't, by the way. <laughs> it was just a bad, Photoshop, right? Or the GIMP, um, or Tomboy. I don't really care personally that, no, this is just me. I don't care where it came from. If it's good, I'm gonna either pay for it or I'm gonna install it on my machine. And I know I'm not a business necessarily, but I guess that's, that's my own view. If it's good, I'll use it, and I believe that other people will too. So I have one thing. So if people want to go and see Tomboy, have we got a stand here where they can go and actually see it and have a bit of a look at it? Yeah, actually, if you run, see all those green uh, posters over there, that whole thing is uh, full of SUSE Linux Enterprise desktop machines, uh -huh. and uh, Tomboy is running it. In fact, uh, what was really cool, I'm going to blog about this later, <laughs> I went up to those laptop machines and logged in, <clears throat> and... Uh, very fast, I was logged in almost immediately, and of course, Tomboy's running down in the bottom left corner. If you click there, they've got something nice, all for uh, BrainShare, that kind of explains a little bit about BrainShare, and also about, uh, it's got some, it, it has a list of shortcuts of how to do cool things with XGL. So if you want to see Tomboy in action there, just go, go to any of those laptops and log right in, and you can, you can play around with that. And, and for that matter, since uh, Boyd mentioned his blog, I'll say uh, that you can find Boyd's blog. Of course, you've got a URL for your blog. Um, maybe you can tell us what that is, or is it a big complicated one? Oh, no, it's uh, blog.timothy.ws. That's easy enough. And you can also find uh, Boyd Timothy on uh, Planet Gnome, where all the Gnome developers and hackers are, are, are blogging and all the time. He can't get a word out right now. Um, <laughs> guy that can't talk. Um, but uh, you can find Boyd there, as well as many other of the people working in various parts of Linux desktop on the Gnome front. So, Boyd, thank you very much. Thanks, Give it up thank for Boyd you. if you would. We'll take that for a moment here. Randy will come around and get it at some point. And now, um, for our next guest up here, uh, we bring up uh, the one and only Nat Friedman. Some of you saw his demonstration, his wild demonstration on, what was that, Monday? It seems like it was a week ago already. <laughs> so we talked to Nat on Monday. We heard from him on uh, the stage. Nat Friedman, come on up. All right, so uh, time to get into some questions here. Can we get a quick audio check on his microphone? Thanks. Nat, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Good. Not quite yet? Hello. Getting... Hello. <laughs> Excuse me. Hello. Hello. Nat, can you, can you sign language for <laughs> He probably can. <laughs> Actually, he, yeah, I know. <laughs> he can type faster than anybody alive, too. So uh, let, let's... Actually, you know what? This one is not mine. Do you have yours? You I do. do. Good. Okay. Fire away, Caitlin. So, Nat, no, you're, we've already got a CTO at Novell here, but you're the CTO of OpenOffice. We need two. We no, did. no, not OpenOffice. Oh, sorry. CTO of Open Source. Yes. And um, tell us about what you do. How is that different from a normal CTO? Um, well, I don't really know how it's different from a normal CTO. Hold on one sec before you answer that question. We're going to have to mic you this way. Okay. Is this better? Hello? <clears throat> 
I'll be patient. Mike's hair is falling out right now. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. Testing, testing. All right, much better. <clears throat> CTO wanna... of open source was Caitlin's question. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, it's a good question. I, I've uh, been in a few different roles at Novell since I joined a few years ago. Um, I guess my my major role or the one that I've been most known for has been uh, my engineering work on the Linux desktop, which produced Slide 10, um, and my role there as, as VP of Engineering. And and I was given the opportunity uh, sort of at the end of last year to get more involved with everything that we're doing with Linux and open source. Um, and, you know, I kind of, you know, what I feel like I, I um, enjoy doing and enjoy contributing is is sort of trying to do innovative work, doing new things, new features, stuff that hasn't shown up anywhere else, potentially game-changing technology. And, um, you know, I think if you look at SLED, you know, I, I'm very proud of, and it's not me, it's people like Boyd and the team who've done it, but you look at SLED and you see that we, you know, we created an environment where all of our innovators like Boyd can do incredible work, and it, it's just it's a totally amazing product as a result. And so the idea is to apply some of that same stuff to the server. Um, no, I was just going to ask that. Yeah, I mean, um, we have a really innovative team overall at Novell on the server. We have, you know, for example, Zen in SLE 10 and Celeste 10 is, is awesome. We've been huge leaders there. But, you know, the, the question that I'm trying to answer is what should we do? What can we do to make a Linux server that's just, just a blowout product, a breakaway product? And and that's my goal. So I'll get involved in kind of like higher risk, speculative areas of technology development um, to see if we can do something that's new, and that's great. Now, you, you actually just recently moved to Germany to be closer to yes. the SUSE guys, right? Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, we purchased, uh, Novell purchased SUSE at the end of 2003, basically, and Zimian was bought in the in summer of 2003. And, um, you know, the, uh, we we want a really strong integration between all these components. I mean, if we're going to move forward and be really successful, we want that to happen. And, you know, all the SUSE guys are in Germany for the most part, so I thought if I could be out there, it would be better. So overall. there's kind of a weird cultural thing, though. Uh, the thing that I think is going to be tough, having been to Nuremberg a couple times and whatnot, if I was relocated there and forced to live there, I don't think there's any way I would leave because Nuremberg is just one of the coolest cities I've been in. And, and the Sousa office, those guys are, they just rock. Yeah, it's great being there. I mean, one of the cool things is that, you know, that if you look at Red Hat, like their development labs are split between Raleigh and Massachusetts, Westford. And you look at the, the desktop team that I've been over for so long, and it's very distributed. We've got people like Boyd and Provo. We've got guys in Cambridge. We've got people in Canada and India and everywhere else. And what's cool about being in Nuremberg is we've got you know, a couple hundred incredible Linux experts in one building, and they're all in development. You know, so it's, it's it, that's really cool. I like being there. Yeah, yeah, and their work ethic and everything. It, it's just a, it's a yeah. I, it's hard. Place. It's hard to compare in Novell. I mean, work ethic. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's really strong across the company right now. So, yeah. So um, you're you're living actually. You're commuting about an hour from Munich, right? Yeah, I don't there? commute every day, but uh, I'm living in Munich and taking the train up. All right. All right. So just cl clarification there. Oh, not Nuremberg, actually. Should we take a couple questions from the audience real quick? Absolutely. Let's, sure. uh, let's see what people have to say out there. And there's, uh, well, I don't see any hands right now. <laughs> Come on over here. Don't you work for Novell, sir? Maybe you want to give somebody else a chance? <laughs> Hi, Nat. Um, I love using SLED. I use SLED and OpenSUSE every day. And uh, for me, the transition's been pretty painless. And I'd like to start putting it on some user desktops, 
But the Windows applications, of course, are yeah. some of the objections. Now, I know either last BrainShare or the BrainShare before, Novell had started collecting from users, you know, what applications do you use under Windows that we can help, sure. you know, transition. And I'm just wondering if there's been any progress on that or if maybe yeah. you're working with the folks that develop Wine yeah. to, you know, help move that just along. That, out of curiosity, what kinds of apps do you find are barriers for the users yeah. you're working with? You know, we have a lot of um, utility-type applications. For instance, like our UPS shipping application okay. is one. Uh, you know, just a stupid little thing that has to run on a couple yeah. desktops. Or maybe we have, um, like, a custom-developed uh, tool from one of our, provi- you know, our um, manufacturers. Yeah. Uh, you know, that maybe is just like a little visual basic app or sure. something like yeah. that. So, yeah, um, I mean, um, this is an incredibly good question because uh, this, is, this is the big barrier left for Linux overall. I mean, if you look at Vista and you look at SLED side-by-side, you know, it, it, Vista doesn't look better. It really doesn't. You know, they're bragging about the wow factor being the major new feature in Vista, and it's something we've had in SLED since, you know, since before release. And so the, the big difference that I see technically, um, there isn't a big technical difference, but the big difference that's there is that there's a huge ISV ecosystem around Windows. And if you go to TechEd or any of their other Microsoft conferences, you see just how much energy they pour into building their developer community. And this is where we're weak. So right now, you know, the the target market we we sort of established for SLED was this this, um, hypothetical individual we call a basic office worker, which is somebody who just needs, you know, like the five or six core apps, spreadsheet, word processor, email, browser, IM, that kind of thing. And... You know what we've what we've told our customers is if there are a lot of other custom apps that you need or or, or Visio or Microsoft Project stuff like that, you're probably not looking at the right operating system right now. And we think you know we think really there are a lot of people out there who meet that basic office worker description. So that's who we're targeting for now. Now that doesn't really answer your question though. So but to answer your question, um, right now what we're doing is we're for people who are using Win32 applications written on the Win32 framework, we're pointing you at Code Weavers. Because we think that's really the best way to go right now. Lowest cost way to just move the application. For most of those basic utility type, in-house developed things like you just described, Visual Basic, they'll work right out of the box in Code Weavers. We did a survey, Cool Solutions did a survey of like the top 10, you might remember this, the top 10 Windows apps desired in Linux. It was posted, and then uh, Jeremy White, who's the CEO of Code Weavers, emailed me the next day and said, you know, we run eight of the top 10 <laughs> that you have there, and we're working on the other two. And that was over a year ago, so they're probably all running now. So... That's, that's one way to go. If they're newer apps, then they're, they tend to be written either as a web app, in which case they're going to work on SLED, or they're written in Java, which is, you know, that works too, it's cross-platform, or they're written in .NET. And many, many of the .NET applications, even written using the Microsoft System Windows Forms uh, interfaces, are going to work on SLED. And we actually have an evaluation tool called MoMA. Does, do you know what it stands for? Uh, mono... I don't know, it's, it's an analyzer that'll, you know, it'll look at your .NET application and tell you if it needs to run on, if it will run on Linux with Mono. And if it doesn't, it emails the Mono team what functions they need to implement to make that application work. Um, and so they, what's been great about that is they've gotten like thousands of application profiles in and they've said, oh, wow, if we implement these 30 functions, we're going to get half of these applications running on Linux. So it's really given them a good focus. Uh, so. One other quick shameless plug. Um, we do have a sled, birds of a feather, that's going on today. Um, it's actually immediately following this in uh, room something. Greg's going to tell me in just a minute. But it's specifically to answer questions like this. You can come to us and say, we're trying to do this specific thing on sled. Give us an idea of how we could do this or how we could uh, try to... 
151B. And, and just to follow up on that's on that statements there, Code Weavers is the company that makes crossover office. So crossover office, yeah, is, exactly. Is the so, product. so right, exactly. Well, it's actually it's based on the more than a decade old Wine project, which is basically a reimplementation of all the Win32 libraries and a binary loader for uh, that loads Windows EXE binary, Microsoft EXE binaries in a Linux environment and, and, the, and the DLLs. So that's basically what it is. And, and CodeWeavers is a commercialized version of that that comes with an installer and support and that kind of thing. Do we have another one? Let's get the guy in the red shirt back there if we would, Dave. Run, Dave. <laughs> it's okay. Dead air is okay on the radio. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Hey there. We saw a real good demonstration of the resizing of the videos on Monday, and could you tell us a little more about the development of that and the approach that you took? And that really looks like an exciting innovation. And describe oh. it a little bit, if you would. Yeah, okay, so, so was it Monday? Two days ago, during the Brainshare keynote here, we did a demo of a lot of the work that's gone into Service Pack 1 on SLED 10. And it's really, in general, it's hard to demo a service pack because most of the work, especially service pack, most of the work that goes in there is really like, you know, these 10 customers found these problems and so we had to fix them or just completing work that was not quite ready for, for the, you know, first release. Um, so kind of, you know, we, we had some great features to show, but at the end we wanted to also show a teaser of some of the new technology that's really glitzy that's coming. And we have uh, Dave Reeveman, the author of XGL and Comp is here this week, and so... Actually, most of what you saw there was implemented over the weekend by Dave, um, who is, I've been, I've said this several times during the show, I've been really lucky to work with, you know, some of the best programmers in the world, and Dave is just at the top of the list. I mean, he's incredible. So, but, uh, he, he, so what we showed was basically you could have like a video playing on your screen, and it could be in a postage stamp kind of size, and then you could highlight a region of the screen to zoom in on, and you know, most of the things on your screen would get pixelated as they were blown up, except for the video, because the video would, you know, would retain all of its information. It wouldn't pixelate. It would look very fine and that kind of thing. So you were zooming in on the video. And the way that works is, um, is actually pretty, pretty simple. Basically, um, the, the way it works today is that the video actually plays into an off-screen buffer, an off-screen pix map. And then the windowing system actually scales that pix map onto the screen. So when you zoom in, the windowing system already has the information necessary to show you a zoomed-in version because the full version of the video is available to the windowing system. Now, that's the unsophisticated way to do that, and that's the way we're doing it today. The more sophisticated way is to actually request of the application sourcing the video the more detailed content when you zoom. So, for example, you could have, like... Um, a, a thumbnail gallery on your screen, like uh, one of those slide tables with lots and lots of digital camera photos, all you know thumbnail sized, and you could zoom in on it, and the application, you know, the windowing system would would request from the application the full, you know, or the more detailed photo information to display on the screen. That way, you don't have to have it all sitting in memory, running in the X server at the time. So, um, when you come in Friday, you'll see a bunch of features like that. Uh, if you come to the Friday keynote, where David's ha hacking right now in the next room, and so whatever he's implemented by Friday will show, and it should be pretty amazing. I mean, the you know, imagine you have like a tiled set of um, you know 30 virtual machines, you know, running in thumbnail mode, and you can just zoom in on them and interact with them and zoom out and rearrange them and that kind of thing. We, 
you know, all that stuff is, it's not just feasible, it's like an hour away from working. So it's really cool. We're, we're really happy about that. The other stuff we showed on Monday was actually um, really pretty advanced multi-head capabilities in Compass. So the ability, if you have more than one monitor plugged into the same machine, to use those monitors in a sophisticated way. And, uh, for example, we, well, one of the things we did was display multiple workspaces, you know, each workspace on a different monitor, and then to treat the workspaces differently. So some you could zoom in on, some could clone each other, and it, it's, it's, I mean, you know, the, the possibilities get very exciting. If you're a graphic designer, you can have one monitor showing a zoomed-in version of what you're drawing, and the other monitor showing the larger version. And, um, you know, if you're monitoring several... Uh, we have one customer, for example, is one of the Department of Energies in one of the Midwest states, and they are using the Cube to monitor all their power stations, right? So basically they have monitoring applications running on different sides of the 3D Cube, and then if there's like one of these power stations goes red for some reason, the Cube spins around and shows it to them. And um, So that's what they're using it to do. They automated that. You can, you can do all that programmatically with D-Bus signals. So. Cool. Yeah, let's, oh, yeah. Let's, let's, let's take Drew's question again. How do I overcome my CIO's objections to the quality of open source software? Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a loaded question in that form, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think there's a couple of mythologies that are stale around open source that are quickly being eroded that um, we have to probably remind people that are untrue from time to time. You know, one of those is, is this common idea that like 90% of the development that goes into Linux is done by long-haired, unwashed hippies in their uncle's basement or something like that. And, you know, the reality is it's just totally untrue. And we did a little study a couple years ago where we took all the posters and, and patch submitters to the Linux kernel mailing list, and we built a spreadsheet out of them, and we took the top 500 names... And we found that basically all of them were working for companies, IBM, Intel, Novell, Red Hat, you know, AMD, other companies like that, they were employing Linux kernel developers. And uh, so, you know, so it's this, 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 uh, this, um, you know, this mythology of the unpaid developer being at the heart of Linux isn't true. And the majority of, well, what we found is there's this sort of long tail phenomenon a little bit where uh, you know, the, the people who submit the most patches, you know, people who submit more than two patches is, is a very small number. I can't remember. It's like 30 or 40. And then people who submit fewer than two patches, like one patch, right, that's a, that's a much larger number. But the work they do accounts for much less of what actually happens in the kernel. So um, I, I don't know if we still have those spreadsheets. It would be interesting to make that public because that, you know, that would be one way of countering that mythology. Another way of countering that mythology is, is just what happened on November 2nd of last year when Microsoft said, Linux is so important in the enterprise, we have to come to terms with it and normalize our relations with Linux, and we have to interoperate well with it because customers are demanding it. So, you know, Microsoft is, in partnering with Novell, has basically made the statement that Linux has a really important role in the enterprise, which it can't have if it's just this totally unreliable, you know, thing. So, um, so I think, I don't know, those are a couple things I think about in terms of just explaining to people that their ideas are wrong. You know, the other thing is, if you've ever been involved in taking proprietary code and open sourcing it, you know that one of the first things you have to do is audit that code heavily before you release it. And, 
you know, this, is, this was true when we uh, open sourced the Hula project. This was true uh, when Mozilla went open source. You know, they, they, had to, they had to basically have people read all that code, first of all, to remove all the swear words, right, <laughs> you know, from the comments and stuff like that, and the variables called why won't this effing work or whatever. But um, so all that has to get fixed. But, but the other thing that has to get fixed is all the buffer overruns, all the you know, security problems that, due to obscurity, are, aren't discovered, th things like that. You know, people get scared. Proprietary developers working on a single code base for years get scared when you tell them that people who hate them are going to read their code. You know? so, um, so, but the open source is continuously in that situation, so it, I think it, it's inherently a bit more secure as a result of that. The other thing, of course, is that, that you can tell your boss is that he doesn't have to go talk to these unwashed developers, they, there may be some out there. In fact, he can speak to someone who's very well-groomed, you know, at Novell, who can offer a support contract, and our job is to sit between him and, and those people in the community so you have people in this sort of hybrid position, you know, um, who, uh, who, who buffer all of that for him. So, so I, I don't know. That's probably some of the stuff I tell him. Where else do we have a question out here? <clears throat> Blue shirt guy over there. But can't you call somebody blue shirt guy? <laughs> State your name if you would as you ask this question. I'm Paul. Hi, Ned. Hey there. Um, you answered some of my questions, but how do you determine um, to put something like Tomboy in a distro that you have done with SLED? What is the process in that? Because there's, it's so broad, so much code out there. Yeah. How do you choose something like that? Oh, that's a really good question, actually. How do we do that? Um, I mean... You know, the role of the Linux distribution is, has always been broken into two pieces. One of those roles is that we frequently develop software and contribute it to the open source. Is that better? No, you're good. Oh, I'm okay? All right. We frequently develop software and contribute it to the open source world. And uh, that's usually because we know that there's some feature that's missing or some customer asks for it or a partner or something like that. So um, that's one role. The other role that a Linux distributor plays is like an editorial role where we're creating a compilation of the best of breed applications or libraries or whatever components in each of their categories and making a whole operating system out of that. And that's the, what you're asking about, I guess. So we do both. Usually you don't contribute to things unless you're also going to include them in your product. Um, you know, the, there's, there's uh, one of the things that the open source community is really good at being is like this giant sieve for talent and high quality code. People have compared it to evolution really frequently. But basically, you generally find out about the good stuff pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, so, for example, a project like the GNOME project uh, is like an umbrella organization, you know, which people working on desktop applications, you know, submit their code to. And if it gets accepted in GNOME, then it's usually the kind of thing we want to ship. Um, there's no there's no real science to it though because you know all, the Linux distributions don't always ship all the same things. There's like it can be like a one percent difference between Linux distributions. Um, you know, Red Hat uses the GFS file system. Novell uses the OCFS2 file system. Um, we are based on XGL uh, for our graphics. Uh, you know, um, other distributions use AIGLX. So you know, so there's, there's differences that occur and. And I don't think there's any, it's a, it's a good question. I don't think there's any one clear answer to that. Obviously what we do, you know, at a very basic level is we look at, you know, what are we trying to achieve with this product? What do our customers need? And then is there anything in the community that already does this so we don't have to write any code ourselves? And then, you know, of the choices, which one's the best? And sometimes you don't choose the best, but you choose the one with the most momentum because that's harder to acquire sometimes than technical excellence. Um, 
because uh, if it has more momentum in the community, then not only will it work well and get more testing and development, but even if it's a little bit behind it that way, it'll have a bigger ecosystem around it sometimes. So, you know, um, I'll give you as one example of that. The EXT3 file system has a lot of community momentum, and so there's lots of tools for working with the EXT3 file system. There are other Linux file systems that are really good, just as good and better in some ways, but have smaller communities, so you can't find the backup and imaging and restore tools and recovery tools that you can find for EXT3 as easily. So just as an example. So I don't know. It's, it, I guess that's, one, that's part of the magic, right? <laughs> Trying to do that well. And uh, let's let's maybe take two more questions. If that's, do you have the time for two more, Nat? Mm -hmm. All right, great. So uh, let's see. Actually, this gentleman no right in, the, in back there, Dave. If you would uh, mic him up there. You've you've talked about a lot of the good points to the open source development, but what could what would you change, or what could be done to make it better, to make that process better? In open source, yeah. Well, I think um, that's a good. That's a really interesting question. I think one of the uh, uh, hardest things that we have it's, it's a strength and a weakness and, and that's how you know it's an inherent fact of open source but uh, one of the things that's the biggest challenge is, is coordination of all the different open source efforts because everyone is acting from a point of self-interest um, you know this is what I define as fun to work on or this is what I think is going to be a cool feature to have and coordinating all those to end up with something that's coherent at the end can be really difficult and uh, you know, so, so and, it, and it becomes a social problem, right? It becomes the problem of uh, you know trying to get everybody to agree that you know usability means this, or these are the interfaces that we're going to use. And you can see that in a couple areas. One is the one of the biggest challenges with Linux right now. We talked about ISVs a second ago. If I port an application to one Linux distribution and test it there as an application developer, I'm not guaranteed it's going to work on another Linux distribution. And that's because Novell and Red Hat and Ubuntu and everybody else, well, we're using slightly different versions of libraries, and we're not all coordinated on all the important libraries yet. So that's exactly what standards efforts are trying to fix. But, but that takes time, and that doesn't happen right out of the gate. So I think that is, is one of the hardest things, is just coordinating it. And that's why you end up with people like Linus Torvalds being so important the development of the, of the project because they, they, bring, they bring a certain kind of uh, stability or um, they're leaders, basically. They, they, they send people in a direction. So I, th I think that's kind of one of the hardest things. But again, it's hard to say that's just always bad because one of the strengths of that is that we, you know, if, if a problem arises, for example, virtualization, the Linux community, the open source world, will try all possible solutions in parallel, right? Zen, KVM, OpenVZ, VirtualBox, you know, all these things will be tried in parallel, and if one of them is the wrong architecture to go down, then another one will survive, and, you know, so, and that can be extremely good. So, on the other hand, Microsoft, you know, is developing one virtualization technology, Viridian, and if it ends up being the wrong architecture, or that there's one that just happens to be better, they may not discover that until, you know, and, and, and if they do discover it, they may not ever care. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's one of the things, I guess, that I would say. It's hard, it's hard to change, though. It's hard to change. All right, let's hit one last question. And uh, you mean the guy in the green shirt there? Yes. Not that guy. The lady back behind there, I think she was at. Didn't, no, you didn't have your Okay. All right, green shirt guy named Sean Ajadi. <laughs> On the board of directors for Novell Users International. Yeah, let's hear it. Thanks, Dad. Hi, Nat. Love your work in the open source. Thanks. Let's talk about uh, the other desktop, Apple, Agua interface, and, and all this stuff. 
I really wasn't sure what you were going to say, to be honest. <laughs> so it's got a, it's got a lot of momentum. And Apple moving to um, to the x86 platform yeah. and, and all the all the laptops, and, you know, all the advertising, commercials on the radio, and, and, and television, and what have this and any other. Where do you see the Novell Suzilinus desktop? Well, where do you see it is right now I mean, compared to that interface, and how do you see it um, possibly getting momentum to, to surpass that, that that environment and kind of like make itself a, a number one, yeah. or number two in that, in that, yeah. in that environment? Uh, okay, that's a good, good question, too. Um, you know, the first thing is that whenever I see Apple working in the market, I actually cheer them on because the more people who work on a non-Microsoft platform uh, you know, the more heterogeneity we have in the platform, the easier it is for us to succeed. So, for example, they're using—they're not using Internet Explorer as their default browser anymore, and that means that there's a whole piece of the market that web designers have to think about. You know, they, they can't just write to IE anymore. They have to think about Safari and they have to think about Firefox. So that means they're thinking about standards, and that's good for us because the more people adopt standards, the more freedom we have to enter the market. And so, at that level, I cheer them on. I also uh, admire the, the desktop they built, and their technology is, is good overall. I mean, um, so, you know, they, they face a lot, you know, one of the same problems that we do, um, which is ISV applications, because there's a huge ISV market for Windows, and it's really small for Macintosh, and the way uh, Jobs and Apple have solved that is by building a lot of the core applications themselves, or in the case of Office, having a partnership with Microsoft, whereby Microsoft does those. Um, so... You know, so, so they, they face some of the same things that we do, I guess. Sled, you know, the Apple is totally targeted at people who look like Aaron and Ted. You know, it's totally targeted at people who think they're really cool and hip. And, you know, so it's, 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 a, it's a lifestyle, it's a personality, it's an attitude play, right? He didn't say pompous, Completely. Did he? No, he, he didn't great. say pompous, cool. but he meant no, it. it was unstated. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't say cool little beardy things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like if you've got two ear piercings and a beard, you know. But, um, you know. But, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so, um, so, so yeah, so I think um, Apple is really not targeted at the place where it's easiest to get large swaths of people to move to an alternative desktop, which are these large organizations. Because we, only, we don't have to convince every single one of those 20,000 people at Peugeot that they should use a Linux desktop. We really only have to convince three or four of them, and then you know, we get 20,000 people using the desktop. So, so we're really, that's where we're targeted right now. We're not a consumer desktop. We're not trying to be. We do things like photo applications and other things because, frankly, if we don't, people don't pay any attention to us. You know, we, we did sales call tests where we went before we had SLED 10 released, and we did the demo, and we presented the desktop, and we didn't show any graphical effects or iPod connectivity or anything, but we showed everything else. And then to, to two other more sim you know, similar customers, we did exactly the same demo, except at the end we presented all the visual effects and everything. And you know, which one do you think bought SLED from us in the end? You know, even though they were businesses who had no need for spinning cubes or iPod connectivity, they just felt better about the desktop with all that stuff in place. But it's not our play. We're not a consumer play. They are. That's a huge difference in our approaches, I think. And I, they're just, it's not in their DNA to be, a corporate, um, to be a corporate desktop at all. So I think we're in pretty different spaces. We're, we're Unix desktops. The, the, other, the other difference, though, is that they are a proprietary operating system. You know, components of their kernel and things like that are open source, but it is not an open source operating system. And 
uh, you know, we think there are a lot of benefits to having an open foundation, open source foundation to what we do. So. Not only that, there's also one other thing that I'd look at. If Apple goes into a corporation and tries to sell a customer to buy Apple instead of Microsoft, Apple's convincing them to spend more money than they were planning on spending. They're going to pay that premium for Apple, where what we're doing a lot of times, we're coming in and saying, you know all those machines have already got deployed? We can give you today's technology on those older machines, as well as take advantage of all these new boxes that you're buying as well. At, yeah. at a fraction of the price. Yeah. But now that brings up one last question that I think, uh, and I thought Aaron was going to ask the last question, but I get to this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Consumer desktop is one that a lot of people in the Linux community ask about. People see SLED and they say that's finally ready for a consumer. Yeah. A lot of people, that might not be, it sounds like you're saying that may be a mistaken impression. When do you well, think that might be? Well, eventually that has to happen. And we are enabling that right now. I mean, Ubuntu is thought of as a consumer desktop in large part because of engineering developments that we've done that they've incorporated into their operating system, which is great. That's how it works. And so they're starting to build that ecosystem out and we're happy about that. Eventually, Linux has to, you know, because when you get support on your Windows machine today, you're not calling Microsoft to get it. You're getting it from the computer guy next door or the person at church who understands Windows really well. So we have to develop that support ecosystem, you know, around Linux, and that is going to require a consumer play. Eventually, that absolutely has to happen, but it's a matter of timing right now. And we just see there's so much low-hanging fruit in the, in the corporate and large organizational space, there's no need for us to focus. Consumer's hard. you got people who call you up. You know, you're, they're doing their taxes on your platform. You know, all kinds of problems like that 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 um, we can, you know, we can put off for the moment, basically. But it, but it will happen to have to happen eventually. Very good. Well, everybody, that's pretty much what we have time for today. So that's Nat Friedman. Give it up for him if you would. Thanks. And also, please remember that Novell Open Audio is a production of Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. All of our content is pretty much suggested to us, told to us, or uh, sometimes done by a coin toss, but mostly by our, our uh, listening community out there. So thanks to all of you who have given us feedback and things like that. Please go on the website, rate this episode or any other episode. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it for this time. And we'll see you next time. We're here again tomorrow at 2.30. We start our next show. And we've got Jason Williams, product manager for Open Enterprise Server. We've also got coming in, who else? Oh, you've got Reed Harrison, who's on the Sentinel product that you heard about today a little bit. We're going to talk to both of them similar to what we did today. So thanks, everybody. Thank you.